Welcome to the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church. We hope our broadcast will bless you. Today's scripture reading is found in Psalm 37, verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. May that be the experience of each and every one of us. Happy Sabbath. Um, last week, I received a phone call from one of the AWR. AWR is Adventist World Radio board members. Uh, that was the organization that uh, was uh, sponsoring the evangelism in Ukraine. And uh, they asked me to thank you guys for allowing me to go, like for those weeks, and uh, to express their appreciation. And to express their appreciation, I also thought that it would be nice to do a little report of what happened there before we start the sermon today. So you take like five minutes, but I think it's good to, for you to know a little bit of the work that was done there. Can you hit play for me on the mission report? Thank you. So when we went there, we didn't know exactly what we would find. Because usually when you do an evangelistic series, what you do, you like uh, put uh, announcements on the news, uh, on the TV, on Facebook, and whatever ways you can have to get the word around. But there we couldn't because uh, the Russians, they watch TV too. And uh, people are afraid if... Uh, they knew that there would be a huge gathering of people. Uh, we would be a target for bombs. So we could not uh, do any uh, advertising. So what was the idea? We, uh, AWR organized a group of like 47 uh, uh, doctors, dentists, and other health professionals that went with us. And during the first week, during the day, we had uh, a health clinic. So that's the group uh, that was there with a few of the Ukrainians also. So in the total, we probably had about 60 health professionals plus a lot of translators and stuff like that. And like, uh, did you ever play that game? Uh, uh, where's Waldo? So the game now is where's the pastor? Can you guys see me there? I'm on the middle there somewhere. So, like, what was unique about that clinic is, like, every doctor and uh, health professional was instructed, like, to offer prayer, like, uh, if uh, uh, the person allowed it, and many did. So, a lot of people were prayed for, some of the consultations took longer than expected because those prayers sparked conversations. And uh, at the end, before people went out, there was a, a like that a tent there was the booth where you got like your prescription and then you would, there was a little pharmacy that you could get your medicine right there. But before you reach that point, there was two trucks. We are seeing the second. And in each one of those trucks, there are several offices where uh, chaplains, those guys that are praying right now, they would be talking with uh, the patients and uh, praying with them, ministering to their spiritual needs, and even inviting them to the event on the nights. And uh, that was a very special thing. This group here is a different group. Uh, two of those are the doctors are doctors, but they also were doing some coordination of another work. Uh, those guys are from GRC, that's called uh, Gideon's Rescue Company. Uh, those guys, they go like to war zones, they go to places where like, for example, when the, we had that big earthquake in uh, Turkey last year, they were there among the first responders. So 
And uh, they help us there, but from there they were going to the front lines to distribute God pods that are little devices that have the whole Bible in Ukraine and a few other, bo other books. So that's uh, such an amazing ministry that they had that was also part of that effort. And uh, at the end of the week, we had uh, like the, at the end of the week, on the first su Sunday after we started, the doctors were leaving town, going back to the States or from wherever they came from. So we brought them to a bo boat ride. Unbeknownst to us, that morning, uh, the local TV station kind of broadcast the, the clinic that was in a different place. And we allowed them to broadcast after the clinic was over. So, and uh, when we were getting out, uh, people recognized us and they started to sing a song for us and clap their hands. I'm going to see if the video plays. Last time I tried that, didn't. Uh, but that video was like I, I took when I noticed what was going on. Because they were like singing and, and speaking to us and clapping their hands. And since I don't know Ukrainian, I had to ask my translator what was going on. And they said like, oh, they are thanking you guys for the beautiful work you did uh, this week. We attend over a thousand patients uh, during that week. So it was something very, very good. And people were grateful. They felt touched that people came from so far to ministry to their needs. And uh, here's me preaching. Uh, because of that little incident with the bomb, my church was moved to some place a little safer, but then I had to preach on a, with a translator because the language needed to be switched to Ukrainian. Uh, and uh, so that was my translator, Vlad. Uh, he was also a local pastor there. And uh, he was like my Aaron, he helped me to translate what the Lord had to, to them. And the result was very nice, like, uh, was really surprising. We end up baptizing 12 or 13 people, but over 100 people uh, responded and uh, wanted to dedicate their lives to God. So they are now undergoing Bible studies to be baptized. And uh, even that was a learning curve because we learned early on that people didn't respond to outer calls in Ukraine. Like they are private. They, didn't, they don't want to show uh, what was going on. So we developed like every, we had a little cards that we end up printing on the second day uh, with like a kind of a call to actions. Do you want to have a Bible study? Do you want to surrender your life to God? And like I, we would make those questions and they would fill those papers and then we, through that, we would contact them privately and get their interest. So, thank you guys for the prayers. Thank again for uh, allowing me to go and to pray for me as I went. It was special and uh, uh, I thank God for the opportunity. So, now we can put the sermon proper. Today is the last day of a four-part series about how to deal with your emotions, how to cope with uh, the bad stuff that happened to you. And uh, you know what, like that uh, series actually came in handy in Ukraine because I ended up talking in a side before the, the, the evangelistic meetings to people that were with some mental health issues and that series was a blessing to them as well. So, like, uh, oh, this series title for those that are, didn't come and for those of you from the internet, uh, it's Loving Life. And uh, we uh, started to talking about, like, the first thing we need to do is to share, like, to tell our concerns, uh, to tell about our mental health to tell about uh, or what is hurting us to other people, but especially 
to God. The second uh, item that we that we study was the fact that we have to uh, we can use uh, helping others as a tool to helping ourselves. So, uh, and the problem is that most of us don't like to help others because we don't like to receive help from others. But if we learn that helping others can be uh, something that's healing, even for us, that's something that God programmed in our DNA that makes us to live a better life. And uh, the other thing that we discussed was about the influence of uh, your attitude, your emotions, having a, a happier outlook can make all the difference in your life, can make you to have a healthier life, not only mentally, but uh, physically as well. And today, the last uh, uh, sermon of this series is called Keep Calm and Trust. And uh, the series title, I mean, the sermon title was kind of a ripoff of something that became very famous, like a, probably 10 years ago, a uh, series of posters like that was viral in social media, like in the early 2000s. Uh, it's a version of the famous uh, Keep Calm and Carry On. And uh, you probably saw that poster or variation of this somewhere. That expression is very used in the UK. Like you see this very frequently if you go there. Uh, because that's kind of a, a, one of the icons, national icons. But how that phrase and that poster came about. In the spring of uh, 1939, uh, on the wake of the war, like as they were starting uh, the war with uh, Germany. Little before that, the British government preparing for what's going to happen, they commissioned uh, their Ministry of Propaganda to print uh, three posters to be distributed to the population. Uh, the three posters share the same structure, like just two colors, bold text, and the crown of the King George that was the ruler at the time. Uh, the first one uh, was this one uh, that said in elegant letters, your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution, you bring, you, you bring us victory. The second poster on the series was that one. Same design with different words, like freedom is in peril. Defend it with all your mighty. Uh, the first two posters, they were distributed right away. And they, you could see them in like in train stations and public places. And people really catch on. Like that really uh, brought like a boost on the British morale especially in the first months of the war, when there was a lot of uncertainty. And, uh, but the third one, the Keep Calm one, was uh, hold in storage in different parts of the country, because that was to be reserved for, uh, to be only distributed in case of extreme crisis, like uh, invasion from the Germans, like in case of they succeeded, they breached their defenses or something, like that for that type of scenario and uh was not only until 2006 61 years after it was produced it that uh, the poster became popular uh like uh, a lot of those posters were sitting uh, collecting dust in different depots of the british government to early 2000s and uh in uh, one of those uh Spring cleanings, they decided to throw those things out, and some of them end up uh, hitting uh, one of the biggest uh, used bookstores in UK, and uh, stayed on their back room 
for years and years taking dust. One day, the owner of the establishment was like going over a few boxes of like used books that they had bought it but never displayed and found a couple of those posters. And she liked it so much that she uh, framed it and put on her establishment. And again, that was a very popular bookstore in uh, in UK. And a lot of the visitors liked it, uh, connected with the phrase. And soon enough, she was starting to produce like copies and selling. And that became like an internet crazy in the early 2000s. If not only in the UK, but throughout the world. And uh, by why that expression became so popular? Maybe because of the sensible but simple advice. Uh, I watched a, a documentary some years ago produced by the BBC talking about the story of these posters. And uh, the, the filmmaker, he, he said like, Oh, I think it's because the message, the words are the key for the success. It's a type of advice that never gets old. Like once you are in the middle of a tribulation, middle of a problem, to keep calm and uh, carry on, continue your business. Like if you keep calm, you can see things with more clarity and you can make better decisions. So that's a kind of a timeless uh, uh, advice. And that's why probably that phrase catch on, caught on like uh, became very popular years ago. Uh, but to stay calm in a crisis, uh, it requires more. It requires that we trust in something bigger, something that's bigger than ourselves. And uh, in the case of that historic poster, who they were trusting. Let's look to the poster again. The crown, the king, like the, the power of the nation. That was like the, they felt that they belonged to something bigger. That was like the Great Britain, like that uh, their empire, like at the time, still was like going all around the globe. So they felt that is something that we can trust. And uh, that was the, the message of the poster. Trust in, trust in the crown. Trust in the king. Trust in your government. Keep calm and keep doing your business. And we're going to thrive. We're going to win this thing. Uh, but when there's a real crisis situation that hits home, we really need to rely on something that's greater than ourselves. Like uh, trusting something greater and that's something greater for me, is God, my creator, is something that's proven to be scientifically therapeutic. Uh, trust is therapeutic. Trust in people is therapeutic, can heal, but when we trust in a higher being, in God, that can even be more therapeutic. Uh, a lot of studies had surfaced over the last 30 years that uh, research the faith component in uh, and especially the aspect of trusting in that higher power, trusting God uh, as a, one of the predictors of a be better health, health outcomes. And uh, some call that trust the exercise of faith. And uh, why that happened? People started to as they started to uh, study that phenomena, that like people that had faith uh, in something greater than the, what they are, they usually live better lives. They started to look on the human mind to see uh, how that's even possible. And uh, uh, like the, the organization of the human mind is something very complex. Even to today, uh, people don't understand right. I, for, for years, I, I was a neighbor of one of the biggest uh, uh, neurosurgeons in my country. And he's uh, like one of the top 10 on the world. And then he told me something one time. Uh, 
that made me laugh. Uh, like, uh, Mario, I study and study and study. And the more I study the human mind, the more I know that I don't know anything. Because it's so complex. So any, uh, anything that uh, science tries to put to explain and to diagram how the mind works, it's an oversimplification. Uh, I guess the first person that tried to kind of diagram this was a guy that uh, is called Sigmund Freud. And he organized the mind in basically three components. The id, that's like your more basic uh, way of functioning, is like your drives, like uh, your urges, like uh, appetites and the basic primary instincts. Uh, and then above that, there was the ego that was uh, operating on the principle of reality. Like basically, uh, the ego would look to the world around you and try to make you live and uh, attend to your urges and needs in a way that's like, a, uh, like acceptable by those around you. And then the superego is what we would call almost the conscious because it would work in the uh, principle of morality, like uh, uh, helping you to make decisions based not on your immediate needs, not on the each needs of like self-gratification and the, and the instant gratification, but in terms of right and wrong. So that was the very basic Things have progressed over the years. Now they, some of the models look like this. Very complex, different areas. But uh, I'm going to simplify this with this. Basically, that's something that any psychologist or any, people from, uh, any pers person from mental health would agree. Your mind is composed by your feelings your desires of relationship, desires of affection, your basic urges, and uh, then your thoughts. That and in that thought level, there are your like your beliefs, your values, your morals, your imagination, and above that, your will. And in the way it works is like the will can command and redirect your thoughts. And that can rearrange your feelings. That's how uh, modern psychology kind of works. Like through the, your will. Uh, to reconfigure your thoughts. And rearrange your feelings. Or at least your responses to your feelings. But uh, over the past 20 years. People started to, to notice that that's not enough to see. To kind of... Uh, uh, describe the, the health mind of a health person. Something was missing. And uh, through a lot of research, uh, they figured out that there was a spiritual component missing. Uh, according to some, that's a more accurate model where above your will, there is a spiritual nature that helps to guide your will. Uh, and without that spiritual component, you can never really achieve true balance in life. And uh, that spiritual reason has three components on itself. It has the reason and the conscience that together they work to produce judgment for you to make your rightful decisions. And uh, worship. And uh, such model, it highlights that uh, the mental capacities that somebody has to possess to have like a, a balanced life, a he healthy mind. And uh, that would be nice and perfect. That's how God designed it. But there's something that brings this to out of balance. Something that happened years and years ago. It's our egoism or like our selfishness. That was a result of uh, sin. That box was not there originally, but now it is. Means that like on the, because Adam and Eve <coughs> choose to 
uh, not follow God, they become selfish. And we inherited that selfishness and now it's part of our like way our brain works. So like on the base of everything we do, there's the selfishness, that self-preservation, the I, I, and I. And that kind of uh, guide our feelings. And then our feelings uh, guide our thoughts. And that, and that persuading our will to ignore God completely. That's why uh, in order to have a healthy mind, we have to receive power from God to control our will, to redirect our thoughts so we can uh, deal better and even change your emotions and subdue the self. Is that what the, what the Bible keeps telling us time after time that we have to kill the self? And that's what modern psychology is actually saying today. We have to kill that self in order to, uh, to thrive. And uh, that's something that they are recognizing today over the past 20 years. And uh, uh, David, uh, King David, he was not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but he said something that makes a lot of sense in the light of modern psychology in Psalms 51. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin, and in sin my mother conceived me. Like uh, back 100 years ago, people had that idea that like humans, they are born nice people. And uh, through a uh, process of like education, through the environment, we can, be, we can remain good or we can become bad. But what... Uh, uh, science is appointing today is like that even from the moment we are born that basic egoism that we have like that selfishness that seeds of evil that we have they are already there and you can see that even if you're a baby like you take something that the baby have from his hand what happens he screams like I want it it's mine don't touch it uh, naturally we tend to be selfish and to, and to make decisions uh, solely based on my own needs. That's second nature to us. Uh, there's a, a, a philosopher called Eric Fromm. He said the following. Selfish people are incapable of loving others, but they are not capable of loving themselves either. We used to think that selfishness is like self-love. But it's not even that. It's lack of love whatsoever. We need to exercise our spiritual nature through reason, through the conscience, and through worship. Uh, aim to the Creator in order to discern uh, what's best for us, in order to take better decisions. Why uh, that's so important? Well, like... Uh, what is reason? Reason is our ethical and logical decision-making. Uh, that's what enables us to look to the divine, to look to the principles on scripture, to look to ethics and try to decide things in the best possible way. And uh, what's conscience? Conscience is our innate sense of right and wrong. Doesn't matter if you are... Uh, born a uh, eighth generation Adventist, or if you are born in the middle of a jungle somewhere, we always are born with some stuff that's written on our hearts. It's like a, a Romans chapter 2, I think verse 14 or 15 says like that, uh, when a pagan converts and he doesn't have a law, he has a law written on his heart. We all have that sense of right and wrong. That's why Regardless if you are in the middle of the tribe on the Amazon or in Africa or here, people know that like kill somebody else which by no reason is wrong. That steal is wrong. That uh, sleep with somebody else's wife, it's wrong. And all those things we know because that's the, is our conscience that God programmed us. But uh, the part of that spiritual nature that nobody talks about is worship. 
and worship is something that's very important. Uh, why? Uh, let's look to that quote from another uh, German philosopher called Karl Jaspers. In his book, Way to Wisdom, he says the following. That which you hold to, upon which you stake your existence, that is truly your God. What he's really saying is like that, although I may profess be a seven-day Adventist, I may profess to praise God, and even with my lips I may do so at the church and in other places, what really takes the first place of my life, what really is driving my attention, that's really my God. And uh, that's an important principle by reasons that we're going to see following. There's another guy that I want you to, to meet. His name is uh, Richard Creel. He wrote a, a very famous book called Religion and Doubt. And he presents a similar idea. Uh, he says the following. Divinity for a person is that which literally dominates their life, giving it unity, direction, inspiration, whether the person realizes it or not. So the question is not uh, if I worship. The question is like what I worship. Each one of us, we worship something. And even people that say, I don't, I don't believe in God, like they worship something. There is something that we put as the first place in our life. And even us, we may say we are Christians, but we may have other things that are taking the place that belongs to God, the place that belongs to Jesus. And that's something that we seldom realize. We keep feeding ourselves with stories that like, okay, I'm going to church, I, I dress a nice suit, I speak the right words, and I do the right things, so I'm good. But what really is taking the first place of my life? That's a question that we should be dwelling on. Uh, this guy here, uh, Mohandas Gandhi, some people know him as Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, he was an Indian politician. I once visited his cell because he was thrown in jail for the British government. First in India, and then since even there people are still hearing his voice, they shipped him to South Africa. So he stayed in like the same place where years later they held Nelson Mandela. And I visited that place. And uh, on his cell, uh, there are several of his phrases, and one of them, caught my attention. That's that one that I want to share. He declared that uh, attributing om omnipotence to the reason is bad, is as bad as an aspect of idolatry as worshipping sticks and stones in the belief that they are God. I do not appeal in favor of suppression of reason, but due to the recognition of that which is in us sanctifies the reason. In other words, he was saying like, in a and he wasn't, he, his life on, was in the 20s, on the time that people worshipped reason. He say like, reason is not to be worshipped. It's the same to worship like stones and sticks. I'm not saying to displace reason completely, but there's something else that we need to put in perspective. And that's something else he was talking about God. Each one of ourselves need to ask this afternoon, what or who I adore, what or who I worship, what takes precedence uh, from God, like what sometimes even keep you, like, should I go to church today, or should I do what God is saying, or should I do this? Chances are that that other thing is what you would worship, it's what you adore. There's a direct relationship in what we will adore and what we will be, or what we will become. That's what uh, both psychologists and the Bible call contemplation. Psychology has that principle of like what you contemplate is what you become. And that's what the Bible is saying, like 
ages and ages ago. And uh, modern psychiatrists call this modeling of oneself, by biblically speaking, is the law of worship. Whatever you worship, whatever you love with all your heart, is what takes hold of your life. It's what becomes your God. Our character transforms to the similitude of what we worship. This principle is what enables us to understand passages like a second chronicle, Second Corinthians 3.18, when uh, Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. By beholding, we are transformed. And like, uh, it's interesting because that's why Satan tries to redirect our worship to something different than God. Back on the day of Egypt, people used to worship a lot of animals. For example, one of the biggest idols was a frog. Imagine your family gathering like Friday for Vespers and like a golden frog on the center of your, of your table. And uh, how that will expand your mind, how that will make you grow, what a frog can give you. If you visit modern-day India, that's a temple, beautiful temple from the outside. But uh, that belongs to a sect that uh, they worship rats. So if you go inside, you see rats all over. Uh, and part of the worship is feeding grains to the rats. And like they, they even think that's like a higher glory to be beaten by one. We try to avoid like even contact with those creatures, but they like to, to be beaten by them because like that's a good thing on their way of thinking, on their devotion. And they even pray that when they die, they could come back reincarnated as a rat. So, think about it. God created us to what the Bible says in Genesis, to his image, to reflect his character. And Satan brings people to uh, worship other things, uh, even a rat. That doesn't really uh, seem to something something good but don't look to the to those uh indians down because although you may not uh worship a rat you may not worship a rat you worship something and if you that something is not god you are not too far away from the same pit where they are some areas of mental health even advocate that if anything takes God's place in your life as the place of worship, you lose your mental health balance. And that anything can be even good things, like can be your husband, can be your family, can be your job, can be food, can be your kids, can, anything that takes precedence and that makes you uh, act in irrational ways, that's being your God, and you have to remove it from the first place on your life, otherwise you even lose your mental balance. Therefore, like our planet does not have anything that's worth worshiping. Nothing created can bring us what our mind needs to be held and balanced. Uh, there's a guy called uh, B.S. Uh, Centerwall. I actually showed, uh, put his first name next time I'm going to spell it out because it doesn't look good. Uh, his papers were very good, were not BS. Uh, he, conducted, he conducted research that was powerful. And he demonstrated uh, the power of the law of imitation. And he, the results of his work were published on the Journal of the American Medical uh, Association, a very famous journal called JAMA. And uh, he did that by evaluating the effects that TV has in people. Like, because we, we keep 
watching those things, thinking that has no effect on us. And his uh, discoveries were mind-blowing. He uh, did his research going through, uh, from the inception of the TV, that was in 1945. Till 1975, he went in, uh, in different countries uh, looking to the, how the violence increased over the years as television was introduced. So he researched hundreds of different countries with similar, like all the developed countries with similar results. There was one country that was kind of an oddball. Like, uh, uh, and one of the items, he analyzed many different measures of violence, but I'm gonna share just one for the sake of brevity. That was the rate of homicides from 1944, 1945 to 1974. In USA, they were, in 1974, they were 90% more than what they were in 1945. In Canada, not too much different, like 92%, like that's neglectable. That's even a little margin. And other countries had similar, like around the 90s, 93, 94, 95, all the first world countries that had TV like for longer. But there was one first world country that didn't have TV for that long. That was South Africa. South Africa only had TV uh, in uh, 1970s. 1973, I think, was when TV officially started. Uh, or 72, and uh, during the, that first uh, batch, like 1945 to 1974, they actually didn't have a increase on violence, they actually had a small reduction, and they didn't have TV. But I assume TV was rolled out nationally, like that by 1975, almost every home in South Africa had a TV. And what was the, the results? Over a hundred percent increase in violence and kept growing. Today, if you, uh, he did these studies about 15, 20 years ago. So he had date, data all the way to the 80s. So the percentage of growth of uh, hate crime in South Africa was the same as the rest of us. So, and uh, we are talking about stuff from the 70s. And if you remember the TV from the 70s and compare with today, you would say it's not that bad. But even that, because we are beholding something else that's not God, it transforms us to the image of those we behold. In uh, April 2004, a publication of the American Society of Pediatrics, the Pediatrics in Review, uh, researched that uh, the amount of time that a kid spent in, in front of the TV uh, changes their brain and produces a lot of different disorders like uh, ADHD and all things of, of that nature and also curtail your attention span. Like, uh, to the point that they, after a lot of research, they issue uh, some guidelines that no children below two should watch any device. No children below eight should watch more than one hour a day of, in any device. And even above that age, while your brain is still in development, try to avoid as much as possible. That's the standing recommendation. We don't hear a lot about on the media, but why? Because they also recognize that we, what we uh, focus our attention on rewires our brain. Clearly, what we look at, what we contemplate, what we admire, what we worship and accept in our life has a significant impact on us. And uh, 
I like the following words that come from the Bible. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. For the help, for the help of his countenance. Like David, when he wrote his words, if you read the whole psalm, you see that he was like focusing on the wrong things. He was focusing on things down below here. And that was making him going down. And then he realized, I have to look to God. And by contemplating him, then I become peace. And uh, that's not uh, by chance that one of my favorite texts on the Bible is uh, uh, Colossians 3, verses 1 to 3, that says that we should not look on the things down below. If we are born from Christ, we have to look on the things up above. That's what we have to contemplate and fill our lives with. Because that can bring our minds to the right direction. Uh, so, trusting God is the great antidote for the stresses that we have in life. And I will suggest three biblical things that are also very fundamented by modern research. First, trusting God. Paul says in Philippians 4, 12 to 13, uh, everywhere, in everywhere, and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, to be both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Our greatest need does not come from the things around us. Does not come from self-help. Comes from help from above. Because God is the one that gives us help. And he is the one that gives us power to overcome. Even when he doesn't remove us from the situation. He gives us power to go through. And uh, remember, in order to go through crisis, we need some, something bigger than ourselves. That's what modern psychology says. And biblically speaking, he is the thing up, that's above us. God is the one that we need to get through our crisis. The psalmist stated in Psalm 25 verse 1, Those who trust in the Lord are like the Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. Trusting God. Give us hope. Give us stability. Give us a future. And uh, uh, forgot to translate that one. And that, since you don't have the gift of tongues, that means uh, pay attention to the advices and direction of God. Uh, in times of crisis, it's difficult uh, to know what to do. And our greatest need is for advice. And sometimes God is nudging us the direction you have to go. And we don't want to pay attention. Let's say what the Bible says about his intentions for us. The Bible says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. God has a plan for each one of us. And he is not caught by surprise. He always has everything figured out. We don't need to freak. We just need to ask him. And be mindful of his plan for us. And if you don't know, ask him. He's going to reveal to you through scripture, through other people that he puts on your life. God's plan for us is much greater than the pain and the suffering that we face. And that's why it's good for us to know what he has for us. And one thing you can be certain. You may not know the need and greed like the, of God's plan for you. You may not know like, Oh, tomorrow I'm going to do this, and then God wants me to do that, and that. But at least, at the very least, you know the end of the story. You know that God wants to save you, and you know that God wants to leave our eternity to you. And he, if you allow him to do it, he will drive your life to each step, each day, a step closer to that goal, living with him forever. So that leads us to a, another aspect 
of uh, our trust on him. We have to learn and believe in his greatest promise. Do you know what his greatest promise? What you said, Brenda? That he'll come again. Thank you. I had at least one Adventist here in church today. Uh, so, let not your heart be in trouble. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus asked us to trust him. And uh, friends, we are created uh, to live eternally, but we are not created to live eternally in suffering. God created to us to live eternally with him. And one day, very soon, he's coming to fulfill that promise. And while we wait, we have to keep the focus on him, not on our problems, not on the things that uh, sometimes discourage us, but in him. My advice and my appeal to you today is what Psalm 37 verse 5 says. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Uh, I want to tell a little story that kind of illustrates that. Uh, I usually uh, like to tell my own stories, but I, the story that I have about that is too, it's too recent, so I had it on tell yet, because there are many living among us that may know parts of the story. And, uh, but the story comes from a missionary from the 1920s. I know Adventist missionary. I read this in a book. Uh, a few years ago. Uh, it's a couple from Sweden. Uh, their names were uh, uh, David and Zvi uh, Flod. I guess I'm butchering their last name, but at least uh, it's pronounced, it's like written like Flod, but it's probably pronounced in a different way. Anyway, they had a nice life. They are newlyweds. They uh, had a son that was recent born, they had a nice life, they are not rich, but good life, but God started to bother their hearts, and like, they started to see everything that they had, the good life they had, and, uh, and when they started to contemplate people dying in other parts of the world, not knowing Jesus, they started to think independently, without talking with each other, that they should go to the mission field. One day, uh, one of the two, I can't remember who initiated the conversation, said, like, I have to tell you something, honey. And, uh, well, I have to tell you something, too. And they both told each other what God was impressing to them. They went to the mission board of their church, and they were appointed to go to, uh, to the Belgian Congo, today Zaire. Zaire? Zaire? You know what I mean. Uh, and uh, they arrived there with a two or three year old kid, boy. And uh, they found there uh, another couple of missionaries from Sweden, the, the Ericsons. And uh, they together from the mission station, they went to a desolate place uh, on a and they built a hut, two huts in a top of a mount. Nearby there was a tribe, but they were not received well. Like they learned soon enough that their mission was not very welcome. Like they were uh, time after time uh, sent back like when we throw people throwing like stones and sticks at them. And like situation was so bad that they lived for couple of years there, with nobody coming, like for years and years, I don't remember how many years, nobody was coming. Only because the chief was so prejudiced against them, he instructed nobody talk with those guys. And uh, only one kid was allowed to come every day to sell like chickens and eggs 
and he was instructed, don't talk with those Christians. You sell the thing, get as much as you can, and go back home. And that was for years and years, until one day, uh, Zveka came to David, David, I have something else to tell you. Like at, at, at that point, the other two missionaries that were with them, they went home, they went back to the mission post because uh, the work was not progressing. So just the Zvi and uh, David stayed. And Zvi said, Zvi said, like, have something to tell you. I'm pregnant. Uh, we're going to have a little boy or girl. And uh, like uh, time passed, she ended up having the baby there by herself. And uh, 16 weeks later, she died with malaria. And David was heartbroken. He, he couldn't handle like, God, you, I left all my life. I had a good life. I came to this hole and I'm pouring my life trying to break the ceiling with those guys. Nothing happens. And now... I'm sick with malaria. My wife died with malaria. My kids are sick. What's wrong with you? Like, did I hear you right or I had a delusion? And after a couple of weeks of that struggle, he decided like to go back home. He went down to the mission station. He, uh, his older son was around seven or eight years old. So he, he called fend by himself. And uh, came with him. His uh, month-old daughter uh, was left with the Ericsons. Like, here, I can't deal with this right now. Take it. Keep it for you. And he went back to Sweden. And a uh, little time later, the Ericsons died. And then the baby was uh, uh, passed around. Like, the original name of uh, the baby was changed to Sigi. Uh, uh, I can't remember the original name of the baby. It was a Swedish name. And, uh, and the baby became uh, on the care of some American missionaries that were returning back to U.S. So she en ended up, uh, uh, grew up, I think, in Oklahoma or like one of the southern states. And time goes forward. Uh, she married with one uh, sweetheart on school she became she's a bible teacher and uh, he was a pastor he became a president of a school here on the middle east uh, midwest sorry uh and uh, uh they become uh very important on their community uh and uh david was so traumatized that he left faith altogether. Years had passed. On, uh, on when Aggie, the little baby, was doing her 25th year of marriage, she received something through the mail. Like uh, she was talking through the mail. There was a magazine. Was not sent for her, but uh, didn't have address. I don't know how it got there and uh was in swedish she doesn't read swedish and uh she started to go through and uh she saw something that caught her attention that was a cross with the name of her mom and uh she didn't know it was her mom at the time but something was telling that that was important so she knew of a, one of the college professors that uh, spoke Swedish and she went there like please translate for me he read and read and read and then what she asked what the story is talking about oh it's, it's a sad story about some missionaries that went uh, to Zaire and uh, like the mom died uh, and but what and here's the, the tomb of the mom it's such a sad story but and then she asked, but tell me more. There's more to the story. What? And then they told the story that she was giving to missionaries. And then she figured out that that was her. And uh, she didn't know previously the name of her 
uh, birth, mother and dad. And she figured out now, and she felt a desire to go to, Sw to Sweden to see if she could, she, st uh, she, she started to contact family and see. She finally located the family. She discovered some siblings that uh, she had because her dad married again. Uh, and the professors of the seminary, they all came together like to help to buy a ticket. That's one on, that was like on the 1940s or uh, early 1950s, like traveling overseas, like especially by plane was like something very expensive. So everybody chimed in, bought a ticket and she went. And uh, when she arrived there, she was received by her brothers and sisters. And uh, she asked, is that still alive? And uh, uh, they said, yes. Uh, and uh, she said, I want to tell him what God did. And they said, no, no. Don't speak in the name of God in front of dad. He hates God. He's going to uh, beat you or do something horrible if he even hears the name. And she said, no, no, I'm going to stay anyway. Because one part that I forgot to mention on that little magazine mentioned that that little boy uh, ended up going to school. And uh, when he came back to school, he asked the chief, can I build a school here? And he built a school and he taught people to read and write in English using the Bible. Long story short, uh, most of all the tribe converted and they had like over 600 people church on that town. And so she wanted to tell this to her dad that his life was not in vain. And uh, when he went there, he, her dad resisted a little bit, but then he started to cry when he heard the story. And uh, weeks later, he decided to recommit his life to the Lord. And a few weeks later, he died. But he died on the Lord. Few years later, in mid-50s, she went to a conference. Like uh, uh, her husband actually went to an international conference of their denomination in, in, in England. And uh, they met a minister that was like the chief of all the, the, the head of the national church of that country. And she approached him like, listen, you probably don't know, but my dad worked in your country. Do you ever heard about uh, Zvi and David Flood? And, she, and his, the, the guy started to cry. He said like, my name is such and such. I was a little boy that was going every day to sell eggs and chickens. And today I'm the head of uh, that, the church of thousands of people. Like to see how trusting God can change one's life. David had a choice. He could keep his trust and see how that story would end. And he could be even part of that story. But even though uh, he chose not to trust in God any longer, God doesn't lose his interest in us when we bring our backs to him. And he's still faithful. And he still could reach him even on the end of his life. And uh, in his faithfulness, he used their work to uh, affect the faith and the salvation of many that otherwise would never hear, hear about Jesus. And sometimes we get frustrated because we don't get things in the way we, we want. Because things don't line up to our expectations. But if we trust in God, the outcome on the end will be always good. That's why trusting God is so uplifting. Because we can always see the situation and see what else God can do. Uh, he don't have our, our limitations. And he doesn't operate on our time. So if we trust him, he can lead us to a place of a much better physical, mental, and spiritual health, and you will lead us to salvation. If the story of your life is not good yet, that means that God's not true with you. Because at the end, every story with God finishes in a happy end. My appeal for you today is for you to give your life to the Lord, to your Creator, the one who knows what's best for you. This is the greatest secret of human life, of a happier life. To trust in somebody that's bigger than you. That has your best interest in mind. And that promise that someday he's 
coming to finish that story in a happy note, to undo all the wrongs that we're doing and to live with you forever. There's a beautiful song I like, and that's the song we're gonna sing now to close the service. But as we sing that song, I ask you not only to sing the song, but uh, to uh, reflect on your own experience. Am I trusting God in my life decisions? Or I'm making my decisions because of convenience or because I'm putting something else in his place. So I invite the our praise team to sing our closing song. And uh, at the end, I'm going to make a final prayer. And I pray. I'd like to invite you today, not only you here, but you on the internet as well, to start a new experience with God, to seek his face and uh, to seek that real relationship. You can start with a prayer, studying scripture, but uh, keep with him during the day. Stay calm. Carry on knowing that he is above you. He is uh, uh, steering your life to that day when he's going to come to bring us home. God knows the future and he knows what's best for you. So let's stay close with him and let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, you created us not for a life of suffering and sorrow, but for eternity with you, with joy, with uh, a good life. Help us to fix our eyes on you. And even though we may have distractions on this world, problems, needs, things that uh, sometimes want to get the precedence on our life, help us to check our priorities in order and trust in you above all things. Help us to worship you, to sing praises to you, to pray to you and to uh, say out loud how much we love you. So in doing so, we reinforce uh, our faith and our confidence in you. Help each one of us today to press the reset button of, of, of our life and start a new walk with you. Help us to allow you to be the first and the last on our lives. Help us to put our trust in you and allow you to guide our life so we can carry on with our daily activities. If it's a good day or a bad day, because we know in who we believe. Help us to have peace, even amongst the storm. A peace that only comes if we put our trust in you. Bless each one of us. Help us to rely on you for every decision, every choice, and every thought. May it come from you. Give us your Holy Spirit. Don't let, leave us alone. Walk with us and live in us through your Holy Spirit. That's what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the broadcast from the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church at 2420 East Ashman in Midland, Michigan. If you are in the area, we cordially invite you to visit our church Saturday mornings. If you are a distance away, we encourage you to continue visiting our website and weekly podcast at midlandsda.org.